or online at kpfa.org. The time is 3 p.m. Up next, Cover to Cover. Stay with us. Good afternoon and welcome to Cover to Cover Open Book. Today we continue with our celebration of KPFA and Pacifica's 57th anniversary by bringing you an encore broadcast of Rip, Rift, and Panic, which was produced in 2001 by Susan Stone, KPFA's former director of the Drama and Literature Department. Much of California breathed a little easier after October 17, 1989. The Loma Prieta earthquake measuring between 6.9 and 7.1 on the Richter scale meant that the big one, talked about for decades, had finally happened. And bad as it was, many had survived. Loma Prieta was named for the peak near the quake's epicenter in the Santa Cruz Mountains and lasted 15 seconds. There was destruction from Santa Cruz to Oakland, where the collapse of the Cypress Structure Freeway killed 42 commuters trapped in their cars. Rip, Rift, and Panic is created from the stories and sound of life and death along the fault lines crisscrossing the Pacific Rim. Voices of Mexico City, Los Angeles, Tokyo, San Francisco, Anchorage, tell of fear, flight, and faith in home and ground. Stay tuned as we bring you Rip, Rift, and Panic, where life gets edgy along the fault line. You know, I can't cross a bridge, go through a tunnel, or anything without thinking of them. I don't know, sometimes it's too much, just not knowing when it's coming, you know? I was sitting in the office, and I was talking to someone on the phone, and kind of looking out the window, and the earthquake started. I looked over into my partner's room, and it went from a square to a rectangle, back to a square. And I said, wow. We just hugged, the four of us hugged, and waited for the building to collapse, you know, just hugging each other and waiting. With all these earthquakes and the way this city's built, I think it's built to burn. Hernan is the quarterback for Saddleback. He hands off to Don Shedrick. Shedrick, the ball carrier. And he gained about uh, three yards on the play. And we are getting ourselves a pretty good earthquake here, folks. And that's it. Uh, nobody else wants to play football. They want to go home. Let's hope everybody's all right. That was a pretty stiff one. Uh, this press box up here is uh, a little flimsy, and uh, we can really feel it up here on the top of the press box. Oh. It was 15 seconds. It seemed like it lasted a long time. And when it stopped, it was completely quiet. The city was completely quiet. We need uh, one of your units to check the county services building. We have reports that there's major structural damage inside that building at this time. They have evacuated. This isn't going to happen to me. We're all going to be safe. We're all going to get through this. I mean, this is what scenarios we all say in our mind to make us feel better. Disasters, by their nature, are unpredictable. They are never the way you plan them to be. So you've got to build in flexibility, be able to think on your feet, make quick decisions, uh, have resources available to deal with the unexpected. Safety animal shoes. Clothes, t-shirts. Spare batteries and spare water stored in different parts of my house. 
body bags, first aid supplies. People say, well, I have canned goods, I have food and water at home, I've got my flashlight and my radio, and they think that's all they need. But they don't go beyond the scope of what if you end up in a mass care shelter and there are hundreds of people there, where is everyone going to go to the bathroom? I was not properly dressed for an earthquake, and I was standing at the end of my bed when everything started to shake. It didn't seem like the normal type of shaking. It seemed worse, swaying. The walls came together, and a very large, uh, solid door popped out, and it hit me in the chest and knocked me backwards. So I fell on my back into my hallway, and the two floors above it fell on top of me. My watch was gone, and the ring was gone, and the force of the blow when the door hit me must have knocked him off. Afterwards, I've been told that I was buried alive and had a building fall on you or something like that. But you just don't realize that at the time. Uh, one minute later, you could hear the sound of dozens and dozens of sirens, police cars, firefighters, ambulances. You, you have a city of 20 million people in shock. And then tens of thousands of people standing in the middle of the street trying to stay away from the buildings. People were crying, people were praying. A lot of them were on shock, uh, just doing nothing, just staring at the buildings. While we were sort of happy to be alive, we realized that we were in the midst of a big disaster because right where we were, the horizon was the freeway and it wasn't there anymore. It was kind of lopsided. You could sort of see in through the haze, and then somebody said it fell down. And a semi had flown off the top and had landed, you know, head first or whatever, right, you know, in the middle of the road, and the guy was dead. I mean, he was, you know, he didn't have a chance. He was, because he was crushed behind, you know, the whole, the load of his, of his tractor trailer combination. I don't have a scream. I tried to, but um, I have a very soft <laughs> voice. There was no scream. And I was, all I could say was hello. Nobody could hear me. I was so far inside the building that uh, they couldn't hear me. It's in pretty good shape. Sometimes you notice animals doing very strange things, abnormal behavior. Uh, a cattle start jumping up and run out the back door, the, the dog hops the fence, birds in their cages get upset. You wake up in the middle of the night, a dog's barking, and then the next day you find out there was a little tremor, the earth shook. I live my life differently since the Northridge earthquake. Pictures falling on the wall in the middle of the night, you get up, you're barefoot, there's glass all from your bed all the way to the front door. So my house is arranged so that there's no pictures on the wall. If there's an earthquake, there's nothing will fall on my head or my bed. I saw big old dressers falling on beds down there and uh, glass all the way down. It was, it teaches you something. The day the Northridge earthquake occurred in 1994, uh, fewer than 60 people died. The same day along the east coast of the United States, a winter storm took more than 100 lives. 
So our perception of risk is, is a bit distorted. Uh, the safety of California and the safety of living here is a bit uh, misunderstood, uh, primarily because of the, I think the terror that occurs in an earthquake. Mayor Conroy Cross, can I help you? Coming. I faced it off. We ought to break through right about the third basement level. This All thing right. ready? The pressure's ready. Hold on. I worked on the um, Humboldt, L.A., and um, that's the earthquakes I did, but the Loma Prieta was nothing compared to the Humboldt earthquake. The um, Humboldt earthquake was, uh, was a rolling earthquake, you know, like a roller coaster. And the um, the floor would be up to the ceiling, uh, you know, and down, just like a roller coaster. Where in L.A., um, it was like some big giant stepped on, you know. All three earthquakes were different. Uh, the Loma Prieta was, um, they didn't exactly shift off. They just kind of um, went up, <laughs> you know. it was All of them are different. All earthquakes are different. Well, I started banging on the door, and being a musician, partly, I decided to do waltz time. One, two, one, two, three, and between times I was shouting. And that turned out to be the right thing to do, because suddenly again, in the back of my mind, I remembered that they said, if you do a, a tapping that is out of the ordinary type of tapping, it's more likely to be recognized than if you just bang on something, you know. The rhythm was more distinct. And I went to the front door, and I couldn't open the front door because it was jammed into itself. So I went in through the, through the garage, which was no longer the garage, it was the first floor. But I still saw it as the garage. This is what I think is interesting, is that my mind did not let me absorb the fact that my house had collapsed. My concept was as soon as I got into my home, there would be little butterflies and everything would be fine. And I would sit in my living room and watch the fire across the street. I mean, it was very strange. The refrigerator had come all the way into the hallway. The ceiling had collapsed and everything was shattered. Everything was shattered and the whole thing. And then when I would walk in the house, the building would move. But I felt safe there because it was my home. But it was very likely to collapse at any time. Finally, he, heard, he actually heard it, heard me. And I could hear him say, I hear you. Don't panic, <laughs> everything's gonna be fine, I hear you. So I sort of breathed a sigh of relief <laughs> and just then just waited to see what would happen. And from that point on, it was a matter of the, the fire department and this one fireman who did extraordinary things to get to me because I had no idea how deeply buried I was. What I would do, I would run under a table. When I ground sheets and buildings start to move and, and they make these ungodly sounds of a building in motion, buildings are not supposed to move. It's terrifying and it's dark. For decades, we were told to get in the doorway. Uh, and then we started looking at the pattern of injuries in earthquakes when the buildings didn't collapse. A tremendous number of people were injured by slamming doors or running to get in the doorway. So we completely revised our procedures to duck cover and get under a stronger piece of furniture. You still could be bruised, obviously, 
but at least you're not running and moving during an earthquake, which is really hazardous. If I You know, if it's in the middle of the night, the children have to know. They have to stay in bed until the shaking stops. And everybody should have a pair of shoes in the grocery bag under their bed tied up because, again, that's the number one cause of injury after the Northridge quake was that of cut feet. So we recommend you get like a plastic bag from the grocery store, put some shoes in there, put uh, your flashlight in there, put some work gloves, a crowbar, tie it to the bed so you know where those items are. I was knocked down in this rush for the door. I was standing at the kitchen table <laughs> slicing a tomato and it picked my house up on one end and just threw me back to the sink and then back to the kitchen table. <laughs> and then my husband jumped up out of his chair and grabbed me and threw me in the closet. <laughs> he was that quick. Boom. <laughs> and then we all run outside and turned off the gas because we smelled gas. We thought that the whole city was as devastated as where we were. We, we said, well, this is like, uh, you know, it must be this way throughout the Bay Area. Somebody got a radio um, out of their car or something like that, and, and, and we heard that the, within like five minutes, we heard that the Bay Bridge collapsed. We'd heard that we, we were told that the Golden Gate Bridge collapsed, and then we started seeing fires, smoke and fires. There was actually an incredible feeling of community there that ceased to be any sort of I mean, everybody just had one thing to do, which was to get those people out of that structure. He did put his hand under one beam, and he said, if you can see my hand, let me know, or take hold. Well, I could just barely see the tips of his fingers. And with his hand under the door, I could barely touch it. So I touched his fingertips, and I said, I think I found it. You know? He said, you, you found me. And uh, then it was... It was just like, uh, I knew he wouldn't leave. I knew he'd come back because he said, I've got to go. But he handed me his flashlight. I mean, he put his flashlight under that beam and he said, so it's not so dark. By this time, it was getting dark. The first thing, of course, was to see if there were people inside because the cyberstructure was a double-decker freeway and uh, the top level had collapsed onto the first level. But in some places, it was two or three feet high and you knew that where that had happened, there was nobody who was going to survive in a vehicle because it was like it was just completely flat. Y después todo estaba en silencio. Todo lo que podía oír era el agua cayendo de un lugar cerca. Salí afuera cuando vi un carro aplastado, tan aplastado que no sabía si alguien estaba adentro. Pero me acerqué y vi que el chofer todavía estaba en el carro. Tú sabes, una vez vi a alguien morir, pero nada como, como esta situación. El sonido que siguió el terremoto fue como no sonido que he oído en mi vida. Tú sabes, muy silencio y en muchas maneras como un sonido que nunca he oído antes. We went outside as soon as the 
Earth Stop Moving went to Avenida Insurgentes, which is one of the main uh, avenues in Mexico City. And what you saw was mostly a very, very impressive spectacle of police cars, firefighters, ambulances. You, you have a city of 20 million people in shock. And then tens of thousands of people standing in the middle of the street trying to stay away from the buildings. People were crying, people were praying. It's possible that somebody could survive. And so it was quite scary climbing in there, of course, because you didn't know if it was going to be an aftershock and the whole thing was going to come down and you would be squashed. Plus there were all these noxious, you know, gasoline and oil and tire fumes that you were in a very closed area when you crawled inside. So people were taking a lot of chances. Some people had uh, fire equipment, though, too. And so we got out fire extinguishers, and, the, and a lot of the businesses had fire extinguishers. And so the first job was to try to put out some of the fires and to try to find out if anyone was alive. If there was no way he could get these beams out, so he had to cut through them. So I came back in with a chainsaw. Then they could hear this shouting, you know, get out of there, get out of there. Uh, don't start a chainsaw. Finally, he got through to a point where he could look over this one beam, and uh, we made eye contact for the first time. And uh, he promised me that he wouldn't leave me at this point. But I held on his hand. I begged him not to go back out because he said he had to go. And uh, I said, no, don't leave me, you know. <laughs> and uh, he said, I promise you, I will be back. He had to go get another chainsaw because that one had burned out. He'd gone through it. That's a good one. smoke and the whole back side of the building caught fire and uh, Jerry was his thoughts were he thought he could outrace the fire but he didn't know about getting through the beams you know cutting through everything he said I know if I can get to her I can get her out before the fire reaches her or us uh, but he said that it was so hot in there that you know the back of his ears were burning 
Everything in here has a minimum shelf life of five years. And actually, we call it an executive kit. So in this kit, I'll open it up here. It has all the food and the water. And then in here, there's the portable toilet. These are meals that require no heating, no cooking, no... You don't need to add water. You don't even need utensils, because once you open it out of the package, you just squeeze it up and eat it out of the package like toothpaste. Drink it. So and this is called a space container. This was developed for the astronauts and it reflects 80 to 90 percent of your body heat back to you. So um, basically, it opens up to make that out of state phone call from the payphone. Payphones will be working if it's still standing. Uh, there's a whistle, there's spare bulbs. Here are the water purification tablets, pen and paper to write, garbage bag, first aid kits, Kleenex. On the side pouches, you know, there's equipment with uh, the work gloves we discussed, the goggles to protect your eyes, and on this side, we even have a deck of cards, so when you end up, you've got to again, think of entertainment, you're going to be bored, you know, and then this one has a solar you can see how brightly it glows, because this is actually a five-minute high-intensity light stick, and it certainly is enough light to read by it, you can evacuate down the stairs by it, you can even wear it in a buttonhole and have hands-free for little children. Put uh, important phone numbers. You can put copies of your insurance policies. Those kind of important papers also should be packed up in here. Medication, spare glasses, those kind of items. Some extra cash. You know, you'll be digging and digging. Loved ones stuck under glass debris. And then what happens is you'll be digging it. Your fingers raw to the bone. And with your adrenaline pumped up, you will not even know... Uh, that you're cutting yourselves, you know, so you've got to have work gloves, goggles, dust masks to keep away, you know, flying glass debris. And then we have down here hard hat, duct tape, danger tape. Um, uh, there's quake wax and quake hold putty, spare glasses, medication, you know, and fun things for the children, some of their toys, uh, some reading material for yourself. Remember, them again, the more you bring your life towards normal, the better off you're going to be. The, the entire Pacific Rim is seismically active uh, to varying degrees, uh, whether it be the coast of South America up through the coast of Mexico, the coast of California, through the Aleutians down the other side, the Asian, Japanese areas, New Zealand, Australia. This is an area that is dynamic and it's moving. Uh, it's sort of uh, it's counter to our intuitive senses. The, the ground is still. The ground is, in fact, moving. Uh, Kobe was in many ways like the bay region the earthquake was directly under the city the damage was so extensive to many buildings though including government buildings that government functions ceased to operate It is to bear the unbearable, to take whatever it is that fate throws in the path. If something awful happens, there is gamma. It is about getting back to work. It gives a victim something else that they're not to think about. These 
physical shocks still come and go from the quake. But uh, the psychological reverberations are just beginning for many people. In the next few weeks, months, most of these city residents will cope with an array of symptoms that are <coughs> increasingly recognizable as emotional fallout from a disaster. You know, it's not unlike soldiers in combat. People who survive these earthquakes, as well as floods, fires, uh, plane crashes, oil spills, they experience psychic upheavals so intense that uh, their lives might be shaken for years. I believe it was about 1980 when the American Psychiatric Association uh, formally labeled such debilitating effects as post-traumatic stress disorder. Now, there's a pattern to it all. Uh, initial shock and fear from experiencing the earthquake give way to elation. I'm alive. <laughs> but um, that fades as the extent of the devastation sinks in. Some people must confront the death of a loved one. Some have lost their homes. Some have been injured. Uh, survivors will suffer a host of complaints from headaches, stomach pains, to um, flashbacks, insomnia, uh, maybe even suicidal thoughts. <clears throat> um, people get jumpy. They drink more. They eat more. They eat less. Their tempers are short. They wonder when uh, disaster will strike again. Sometimes make up fresh calamities in their heads. Usually, though, within the year, they recover their emotional equilibrium. But um, the trauma can easily last longer. And more and more, it, it seems as if those who are physically injured recover more quickly than those who escape unhurt. Now, some call that survivor's guilt, but uh, I think it's more complicated than that. You know, disasters challenge this fundamental fantasy that we live with unconsciously that we are immortal uh, in little towns usually everybody knows everybody and everybody is some, in some way or another related okay just everybody in, in nearly in the whole town was killed so we uh, we had to do burial for all these people you know and it was so sad and it was um one of the worst disasters I've worked. And for two weeks, I sat and cried. For two weeks, along with, with everybody in the center, all caseworkers, we sat there and cried for two weeks, along with the, with the client. And I got so in the mornings, I didn't even put makeup on because I knew it, wouldn't, it would be off in five minutes after I got to work. But that was the saddest, saddest thing and the worst thing and the most stressful job I had ever did. I must have uh, maybe lost consciousness for a couple of minutes. And so, it it I was so sad, you know, and so stressful on, on something like that, where the whole town is wiped out, you know. So I, I don't know if I could ever work another one of those. Uh, I just couldn't do it. Because so, I don't literally remember the way of getting out or, you know, how we got out. Because it was... 12 to 14 inches, the little thing where you could come through. But when we were emerging from the building, there were bright lights everywhere and people were applauding and television and everything was on and 
my hands are going, I'm just talking like crazy. And I kept asking, where's Jerry? So they called him back over to the stretcher, and I reached up and hugged him around the neck and said, you're my hero. People think living like in, in an earthquake area is like either you either live in fear of it constantly and it paralyzes you or you have to pretend like it doesn't exist. And I, I know that's a possibility all the time. You can't live your life in those kinds of fears. If you do, if you start to add those things up, there's so many things you would never do. You would never get on an airplane. You would never drive in a car. Uh, you would never go out in public because, I mean, the, the risk of danger to your personal self, if that's what you're fearing, uh, is so much greater, I think, in all those other environments than it is from something as, as infrequent as an earthquake. The biggest danger we face is, is from our fellow human beings. So uh, there's a much more omnipresent danger from other human beings than there is from, from nature. I think we're going to have a really big quake, probably today, tomorrow at the latest. A public announcement now that a major earthquake is imminent. That could create incredible panic. you just heard the documentary Rip, Rip and Panic that was produced by Susan Stone and originally broadcast in 2001. This is part of our 57th anniversary celebration where we're bringing you encore presentations of our treasures. If you have any questions or comments about what you hear on Cover to Cover Open Book, you can call us at 510-848-6767, extension 212. With Erica Bridgman and Nick Alexander at the controls, I'm Amelia Gonzalez. Thanks for listening. And you're listening to 94.1 KPFA in Berkeley, 89.3 KPFB in Berkeley, or 88.1 KFCF in Fresno, or online at kpfa.org. The time is a little bit before 3.30 p.m. Stay tuned next for Free Speech Radio News.